It's March 8th, 2016. This is Research Computing at the University of Colorado Boulder. My name is Jonathan Anderson. I'm joined today by Scott Ferguson, an IT and research computing split personality and resident storage expert. Uh, thanks for being here today, Scott. Thank you. Uh, and our special guest today is Roger Goff, Director of Academic Sales Engineering and Data Direct Networks, if your email signature is accurate. Is that right? It is. It is. That's yeah, correct. Okay. Um, what does that mean? So what does it mean? So, <laughs> so I, I kind of play a dual role. I am a, I am a pre-sales engineer, okay. systems engineer at DDN. So I work with customers to design solutions to their storage problems. Um, but I also manage the uh, the Americas team of sales engineers. So I, I'm an engineer and I'm a manager. And so I am kind of technical stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we've talked before. I mentioned in a previous episode, assuming it gets published before this does, uh, that DDN is supplying the scratch storage infrastructure for our upcoming NSF-funded uh, cluster summit. Uh, we've also already got three earlier model DDNs uh, in Janus and then in other parts of the RC infrastructure. Um, uh, but before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been with DDN? Uh, you've just spoken a little bit sure. about your w role there. but Yeah, you bet. So I've been at DDN for almost three years now. Um, but before DDN, I spent 15 years designing and architecting high-performance computing clustered systems, oh. uh, including selling DDN storage. So I actually sold my first DDN storage solution in 2003. <laughs> uh, so it took me a while to decide to come over to the company and, and be a part of uh, what was there, but I've been selling DDN products for a, a long time. So the, the primary supplier for Summit is, is Dell, of course, uh, and they're theoretically supplying the SFA uh, from DDN along with the rest of the cluster kind of as a combined integrated solution, uh, right? Correct. Uh, but we know from history working with DDN in the past that we'll be working with you directly for support and even parts of the installation, I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh, very directly. So Summit started off as an, an MRI grant proposal where we put out, like, I think Dell was involved in some of our, like, proof of concept requests for information to put as a proposal to NSF. Uh, can you tell, talk at all uh, from the vendor perspective of what it's like seeing these publications come out from an institution like CU where like we, we as far as I'm concerned, we write some tech specs in a document and we hand it to someone and it goes on a website. <laughs> like what happens on, on the DDN side and, and what's your relationship with Dell in that process? Yeah, so uh, DDN has a, a team of folks that focus purely on academia accounts and that's the team that I'm on. And so we have direct relationships with our customers and we have relationships through our partners. It, you know, it depends on buying vehicles. It depends on the nature of the solution. Uh, you know, a lot of our partners can provide basic level high performance computing systems, but when they get into more esoteric things like, oh, brand new interconnect designs or really high performance requirements uh, or, or more complex solutions, then they'll often come to DDN and say, we'd really like to bid with you on, on this particular opportunity. And, uh, and, and as is often the case, we're typically bidding with more than one partner in those situations. And that was certainly the case here at CU. Uh, and in this case, Dell Dell came out on top, and we're we're excited to work with them on this one. Yeah, that was actually one of my next questions that I added. <laughs> I think since the last time you've seen the notes, uh, that you probably had more access to our RFP process than any other vendor, with the possible exception of Intel. Yeah, <laughs> we did. You know, we did, and and. Uh, but it's it's fun because each partner has a different approach yeah. to to uh, what their solutions would look like, and the other 
partners were very different from what Dell was. But, you know, I worked at Dell for a number of years, so I know what Dell brings to the table, and um, they're very capable at these solutions. So I think any of our partners would have done fine. And, and from a DDN perspective, um, honestly, it doesn't matter. We care more about the end user and them getting the right solution than, uh, you know, who provides the, all the pieces. Well, can you talk at all about the relationship with each of your partners during a process like that? Like, surely it's an open secret that they know that you're talking through multiple vendors to us. Is there anything about managing that relationship that's particularly notable, or is it just everyone knows and you just kind of don't talk about it? <laughs> I think everyone knows. You mostly don't talk about it, but we treat all our partners fairly. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we will provide pretty much the same solution and the same discounting levels uh, across the partners unless a partner asks us for something different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a partner may be willing to say, well, I want to dedicate more budget to storage than compute, and so can you come up with uh, something a little less expensive and we'll size the solution up or down, still within the requirements of the RFP, but maybe slightly different depending on what a, a partner asks for. Generally, you know, we treat them all fairly. We, we try and give them uh, as much flexibility as possible. But in the end, we do have a very good idea of what you're asking for mm-hmm. by reading the RFP. And we want to provide you the, the right solution there and not let our partners steer us too far away from that. So uh, let's pretend for a moment that I'm, I'm not familiar with the SFA platform at all. Um, and that the only thing I know is that SFA stands for Storage Fusion Architecture, apparently, because I looked it up today. Yes. <laughs> uh, so what what is the SFA uh, system? And and even, like, I, I'm familiar with the, the so- um, software, the system that predates it, like the DCS mm-hmm. platform. Like, what makes it different from that, which I think of as kind of a more traditional... Uh, you mean like the S2A 9900 yeah, yeah, type platform? Yeah, 9900. I, I right. think it's DCS because that's what IBM called it. I think yeah. they sold it. But. Yeah, we've OEM'd our storage yeah, to the yeah. partners. <laughs> and, and so the, the original platforms, all of the technology was built in custom ASICs that DDN designed. And then when we moved over to the SFA architecture, we shifted to a world where uh, we're trying to focus on commodity hardware components and putting those together in a way that optimizes for storage performance, right? When most people go out to Intel or AMD and they're building compute nodes or or servers, they take a very standard off-the-shelf motherboard and chipset and that's what they deploy. Um, There are buttons you can tune when you're designing platforms. And uh, for DDN, our focus is on how do we get enough IO slots to talk to as much storage as possible on the back end, right? So it's all about getting to that really high throughput rate for performance. So that's that's one piece of the architecture for an SFA solution is that how do we optimize around commodity hardware? Because we do want to minimize the cost of that while delivering performance, right? Mm-hmm. And so then the next piece of it comes to what we call our storage fusion fabric. And what that's all about is a heavily over-provisioned interconnect when it comes around the storage. We want to provide excess bandwidth to all of the disk drives, to the controller, and out of the controller to the front ends uh, in order to assure a number of things. One, of course, is maximum performance. We always talked about that. Um, But the other thing is incredibly high availability. On DDN scale-up platforms, so like the 10K or the 12K platforms or this 14K platform that we're we're bringing here for Summit, you can afford to lose many pieces of the system and still maintain host IO. So we can lose a whole controller, we can lose cables, we can lose IO modules, we can even lose an entire enclosure and still have the file system maintain host IO. Now, yeah, it'll be in degraded performance, but it will stay up and running, um, which, uh, you know, contrary to popular belief, is important to HPC customers. If your storage (laughs) goes down, your computing stops. So uh, it is an important feature and that goes into that. 
The final piece of SFA, and you can't forget this piece, is the SFA operating system. And this is a real-time storage operating system. So before I came to DDN, even when I was selling DDN stuff, I always had this perception that says, well, it's an Intel server and they're running some flavor of embedded Linux and maybe they have their own RAID solutions. Um, and that was really a, an improper uh, understanding of what's under the covers. And when you get there, you find out that DDN has written a pure storage operating system. It is a real-time operating system. There are absolutely no interrupts, no context switches. Uh, so what that yields is we don't have any extraneous processes coming in and slowing down and adding latency to your system. Um, every operation is a storage operation. Mm -hmm. um, we don't even do context switches down to a kernel level. The SFA operating system runs in user space, mm -hmm. we, but we ported the block drivers that actually talk to the, the spinning disks and the interface cards into user space. So we don't have to make that context switch from user space to kernel space. Uh, you know, so what that adds up to is very consistent performance too. From run to run to run, you get very consistent performance out of a DDN machine. Okay, that, that's interesting. I, I think I've probably heard someone describe the SFAOS as a real-time performance or uh, storage uh, operating system before, but it. With your description of it being a user space process, is it, is it still running on top of a Linux kernel or is it something else entirely that it's running on? No, there is a Linux kernel okay. underneath the covers and, and then we run SFA on top of that and it takes over all operations from that. It's, okay. a, it's more, merely in bootstrap mode. Yeah, so, <laughs> so this is like really into the weeds then, but how does it prevent being interrupted by the kernel itself? Like how does it maintain real-time uh, control over the operation of the system? There's really nothing for that kernel to do. Okay. Once it's kicked off the SFA process, all things are handled There's by just SFA. one big user space process. That exactly. Does okay. Exactly. That's very interesting. Uh, so I've heard the DDM platform described, perhaps even by you, I, I don't remember, uh, as a, a super fast PCI Express backplane. And I think just now you've referred to it as the storage fabric or storage interconnect. Uh, storage fusion fabric yeah. is, is how we describe the overall system, though. That's kind of end to end. Um, but what you're talking about with respect to the 14K is absolutely true. And and I want to step back to the 12K to help okay. you understand exactly where that came from and, and why this was done this way. So the 12K was a pretty traditional two-socket Intel server uh, as our controller board. Um, and as you know, several generations back, Intel integrated I.O. controllers into the processors instead of into the memory controller hub, if we remember that transition. Um, and what that creates is what we call wrong side I.O. So if I'm running a RAID process on one processor, but I need to talk to a disk that happens to be connected to an I.O. bus that's connected to the other CPU, I have to go across that QPI link, as Intel calls it, between the processors to transfer data. Right. So that's kind of a little bit of wrong side. Oh, it sure would have been better if I could have gone from my processor to a disk, you know, an I.O. connection that was at my CPU. Mm -hmm. So uh, after deploying the 12K in the field and studying the performance and trying to figure out anytime we do this, we release a platform and say, what are our performance limiters? What, what is it that keeps us from going even faster? Could we put a faster CPU in? Would it go faster if we did that? In this case, it turns out that that QPI bus is a fairly significant limiter to performance on the 12KX platform. And so when we designed the 14K, we took a new approach that I've not seen any other server vendors do, but you could. Um, but we, instead of um, having traditional connections where an IO module would connect directly to a CPU via the bus, we instead put in a full bisection bandwidth PCIe switch behind the CPUs. So now each of the 40 lanes from each CPUs goes directly into that switch. 
Also, all of the I.O. cards for SAS I.O. or for the front side bus, which is also through, you know, 16 lane PCI Express cards. And we can plug in different interfaces. We'll talk about that a little okay. bit more, I think. Um, and, and so the net effect here is that that transfers across that QPI bus are no longer present on the 14K platform because we go straight through the switch to any disk inside of the system. Yeah, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, you, you're effectively replacing what the QPI is with something more special purpose, right? You, you've created what would be going over that link as an external PCI switch. Exactly, it, yeah. exactly. And But this is a commodity PCI switch. Yeah, yeah. Anybody could go buy it, but you got to design the motherboard that goes around it to right. make everything talk that way. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, how much of the like something I don't understand about a, a vendor of DDN size and, and kind of very special purpose is how much of the engineering of say what you just described the storage fusion architecture whatever yes. the, the, <laughs> the you know designing this process how much of it is actually done in house versus how much of it is OEM from other partners, if you can talk about that at all. Sure. So, you know, system design is all done by DDN. Okay. Um, you know, obviously the operating system is completely developed by DDN, millions of lines of code that we've been developing over many years. But even the hardware level components are designed by DDN. Now, we don't do our own manufacturing. We, like everybody else, design the solution, select a contract manufacturer through a bidding process, and they actually build the systems for us. But um, our own engineering team is the one that came up with this approach of putting that PCI switch in there uh, and is true on all of our systems. It seems like the next logical step would be to hang a bunch of PCI flash off of it and just bypass uh, SATA or, um, or SAS entirely. But yeah. it sounds like that's not the case, but you no. have a solution for this. Th that, that's right. And, and it, it, it's a solution that's about to be introduced. And the 14K platform that we're talking about uh, can actually come in three different forms, right? And, and the one that we haven't talked about yet is that in the 14K, new to DDN, so this is the first platform where we've done this, we've got 72 two and a half inch slots in the controller chassis itself. Now, of those slots, 48 of them could be PCIe cards. All right, so we could put 72 SAS, SAS disks inside of there, or we could put up to 48 PCIe direct connected cards. Now, it's not enough just to put a very fast piece of memory inside of a system to make it go fast. Um, I, anybody could build you a fast flash array, and then the question is, is okay, now what do you do with it? Uh, and most people are going to stick a traditional file system in front of it, GPFS or something like that, and then you're going to be bound by the performance of that file system. Uh, and, and DDN is... is got a new product about to be released. It's called Infinite Memory Engine, or IME. And we actually started showing this product about a year and a half ago at Supercomputing. And mm -hmm. what it is, is an IO acceleration layer that goes between your compute and your persistent storage system. And the, the idea behind it is to overcome some of the, the, the real blockers to performance in a parallel file system. You know, parallel file systems were designed to stream large IO really fast to lots of clients. And they do that really well. But you start throwing small IOs at them or lots of random IOs at them, and they start to fall down. And so a great example of this, so this IME code we wrote, it's this very fast buffer that you write to, and it, it'll scale linearly for small IOs, large IOs, and it's built on top of PCI Express Flash, okay? Uh, but what's interesting is we took the same set of hardware. This was a demo we did at Supercomputing. And it was a bunch of servers. I think it was 18 servers. They all had SSDs inside of them. And we put a GPFS file system on there. And it could have been Lustre. I don't really care. It doesn't matter. And we ran benchmarks against it for some of these codes that really make parallel file systems struggle. And we got a performance benchmark. 
And then we put IME on the exact same hardware. So we'd flip the switch, reboot the nodes, run IME on the hardware. And for some of those codes, you can literally see three orders of magnitude performance improvement in your IO speed. Now, not all cases, but some of those really degenerate cases that a parallel file system struggles with. So here I am, I'm running on SSDs, pure SSDs on my parallel file system, and I'm running the exact same hardware with a different set of software to manage those SSDs, and now I unlock the performance of those SSDs. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a long story short to say this 14K platform is gonna do traditional parallel file systems, but we're also gonna build appliances where we fill it with PCIe SSDs mm -hmm. and run this other IME software on top of it um, as this IO acceleration layer or burst buffer type technology. Mm -hmm. A lot of people talk to them about, uh, about it like that. Right. Um, <clears throat> instead, we'll run it on the exact same hardware, but with this different software load on top of it, um, and it'll scream. You'll, you'll see performance numbers that, that'll really surprise you. So what does that look like from kind of a user application level? Like, we, you know, we all know that, that POSIX can introduce its own bottlenecks uh, to file system performance and that you gain a lot by dropping some of the semantics, uh, semantic requirements of that API. But, you know, a lot of software is written against <laughs> POSIX, right? That's so right. So if, if I have a piece of software that today expects a completely traditional POSIX e-file system and they want to use IME to accelerate the IO performance of their application, what does that conversion look like? So the, the conversion is, is simple. Uh, in fact, we've created multiple interfaces to IME, and the first one we knew we had to do was exactly what you talked about, is a POSIX-like interface. And so we've got, uh, using the Fuse library, we can provide a POSIX-like mount point to IME. Um, and yet we don't honor all of the IME locking semantics inside of IME. Oh, the POSIX locking The POSIX yeah. locking semantics, rather, yeah. not the IME locking yeah. semantics. So yeah, we, we, we don't trust them all. So in other words, we don't do all the locking and the unlocking and all the metadata operations. So you have to have a, what I would call a well-behaved application. Mm -hmm. If you've got multi-editors, for example, on a file, that's probably not a good application to throw into IME because you could definitely walk on each other and we probably won't catch it. But um, that POSIX mount point means that all you have to do for your code is point it at that POSIX mount point and you'll get acceleration from IME, whatever your application can be accelerated. Um, will it be the full potential of IME performance? No, it will not. We hope to get somewhere around 50 to 60% of the performance possible of IME through this POSIX mount point. Okay. Um, but the nice thing is, is again, you know, scientists don't like to rewrite their codes right. and they generally don't rewrite their codes. <laughs> right. uh, they just want it to go faster. Uh, so if you can point it at this directory and it goes faster, life is really good. Uh, there are also, there's also a native interface to uh, IME and it's, you know, IME is an object store. Right. And it's got a simple put, get, delete interface. For those folks who are doing checkpointing, for example, it's very simple to say, you know, put my memory image out there uh, and, and get it back or actually hopefully never get it back, just delete it later, right? Uh, so that's one interface. And then the other interface we've done is we've provided uh, an MPI interface as well. So we've instrumented an MVAPH2 library so that if you use MVAPH2 for MPI IO and you link against our instrumented MPI library, you will get native IME performance because all those IO, IO operations will go through IME. Oh, that, that's actually really interesting. I didn't expect that. Do you, um, do you have intent to support other MPI implementations eventually or is MVAPH particularly uh, suitable to this for some reason? You know, you know uh, MVAPH was an easy starting point uh, and we, we started there and we will do more things as we get feedback from customers, which is, you know, typical. We, we hope to do other things like HDF5, for example, right. uh, custom implementations of lots of IO patterns. 
So, you know, this is a, a Rev1 product. It's going to ship very soon here within the next uh, couple of months. Uh, and uh, we've got a few select customers who we'll be working with on these first generations. And the more we deploy this, the more we're going to learn. We'll, we'll hear back from customers about here's what I'd really like to accelerate. So then we can go back and continue to enhance that code for those other other interfaces and other important. Is, is there anyone in the region that we should be following up with or, or kind of watching to hear how IME is working for them? Do you know? If so uh, there's uh, one major deployment in the U.S. Okay. Uh, that's that's going to start. Uh, well, this, the main system is going in at Ohio Supercomputing Center. Okay. Their storage deployment is starting in about two weeks. So the main 14K systems that they've got going in, their IME will start probably in June. Uh, time frame. So we'd be happy to connect the folks at CU with our friends over at Ohio Supercomputing Center and, you know, interchange uh, uh, experiences and habits. We'll probably work with OSC on a number of um, publications as well and white papers so that um, people can get some understanding of what kind of results we're seeing on uh, in a production environment as opposed to the sort of mini environments we've been testing in so far. Yeah, because I know, uh, uh, you know, we've heard of IME before, of course, and uh, one of the big barriers for us even considering it is application portability. And, you know, knowing about this fuse layer especially uh, is is interesting. The MPI compatibility stuff is even more interesting. I mean, we don't, I don't think we use any MVAP pitch in here. I think it's pretty much all open MPI. Okay. Um, but, you know, if we could talk more about that later, that might be, uh, especially with Tim Brown. A- absolutely. Uh, I think would love to know more about that. DDN is customer driven, <laughs> yeah, right? For sure. And for years, we, we listen to what our customers say and, and uh, you know, we maybe not get it overnight, but we absolutely respond to our customers' needs. I mean, HPC is our business. This is all we do. We are the number one provider of HPC storage in the industry, and it's because this is all we do. We don't do core of the enterprise stuff. Uh, you know, we don't do databases and, and uh, high transaction virtual machine environments and things right. like that. All we do is HPC storage. If I understand correctly, this isn't a pure flash storage system. This is kind of a tiered thing that has the flash in front of it. Is that accurate? So like a traditional SFA with hard drives in it, you also have an SFA component, or sorry, a flash component in it to make it an IME system. Is that accurate? No. So let me describe it a, okay. a little bit and, and let you know that this will continue to evolve because IME's magic is in its software. It's not the hardware. Right. Uh, so what you will have is on each of the client nodes, each of the compute nodes, there will be an IME client that knows how to talk to an IME type system and knows how to talk through this fuse mount point for that POSIX-like interface. But then you will have an appliance that sits on your network and actually you'll have a stack of appliances. Um, you know, because we do, uh, it is an object store, as I mentioned, but we do an erasure encoding within the object store. So in case you lost an IME server, you wouldn't lose your data that was stored in IME. So you will have this new layer sitting on your network um, in direct connected to whatever your cluster is using. So if it's OmniPath or InfiniBand, um, we'll have a native interface for that into IME. Then what IME will do, and this is one of the most interesting things about it, is once you've done all your I.O. operations, you've done all those small I.O. operations creating this big file, and you want to dump it to the parallel file system, IME is going to coalesce those small I.O.s into a full stripe to be able to dump to your parallel file system that sits on the back end. Okay. Um, and we'll support initially Luster and GPFS, um, but certainly there are other possibilities out there that we can support over time. Uh, one of the most exciting things about the SFA 14K for Summit uh, has been that it seems to be, from what we can tell, the first and so far only storage system to support Intel's new OmniPath interconnect natively as a first tier I.O. pattern. Yep. Um, I understand that the OmniPath support in the SFA um, is is unique even 
you know, beyond what other vendors might intend because of this dual port uh, Omnipath card, the HFI card. Uh, and I think you were telling me at one point that it actually maximizes bandwidth beyond the 100 gigabit per port. Absolutely. Um, uh, can you talk about that card? It sounds sure. really interesting, and and like the process of de- like was that developed for or at the request of DDN? Is this something Intel was planning on, on providing? But you're just the only people using it at this point, right? So no, this was developed at DDN's request for okay. DDN, uh, and we have been working with Intel on it for quite some time, uh, to to have it out, and it, it's kind of cool. So let me let me back up just a little bit to help folks understand why this is interesting, why having a dual port card in a PCI slot is interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, right, because the, the Omnipath port is 100 gigabit. You're not going to get 200 gigabit out of a PCI Express exactly. card. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so to understand that, we'll back up a little bit. So how do you do PCI? PCIe Gen 3 is, is, the, is the interface that we have for PCI today, mm-hmm. whether it's a Haswell system or a Broadwell system. That's what we're using. In a PCIe Gen system, each lane is slightly under eight gigabits per second of throughput and around 7.877. So mm-hmm. let's just round it up to eight just for, for purposes of easy easiness. So if you have a by eight PCI slot, that means you have in theory, 64 gigabits per second of throughput to that PCI slot. Okay, so if I put a hundred gig card in that by eight slot, I can get at most that 64 gigabits per second of throughput. And it's actually less than that because mm-hmm. you lose some in the encoding of the data on the PCI bus, et cetera. But we'll ignore the, the minutia for now sure. and just talk at a macro level. So um, with a by 16 slot, we double that from 64 to 128 gigabit. And then you plug a 100 gigabit card in there and ah, now I have enough bandwidth on my PCI bus to accommodate that full 100 gigabit of, of throughput. So uh, you know, from Intel's perspective, most of their customers saying, hey, that's good enough. It's all I ever need. If I'm going to do that in a compute node or what have you, that's good enough. But in DDN storage fusion fabric model, one of the things we do that's different from everybody else is when you connect an IO node to storage, we will connect it twice. We'll connect it once to each controller inside of the box. And that has multiple purposes. The primary purpose is for availability, right? Mm -hmm. If one controller was down, say we're doing a firmware upgrade on SFA on one controller, we take that one down, that IO node still has a path to the other controller, which is still up, to continue doing host IO. Um, So that's the number one reason why we want those dual ported interfaces is so that we can connect to both controllers and maintain that level of availability beyond a conventional array. Yeah, it's worth pointing out that every SFA and even before that, the S2A is a dual controller pair. Uh, Correct. Pair, right? and, and those ports are always dual ported yeah. out the front for mm-hmm. this exact same reason of being able to have that high availability. Mm-hmm. So what goes beyond that, however, is that DDN sends up the multi-path relationships such that we can actually use both of those ports simultaneously and will use both of those ports simultaneously. So um, in theory, we'll see if we how often it happens in practice. It is coded such that you can get more than that full 100 gigabits of the, of the one port from Omnipath and instead get closer to that theoretical peak limit of that by 16 slot. So does that mean that each port is effectively capped at the 64 gigabit bandwidth of the by 8 or do they each have access to the full 100? So they're each plugged into a by 16 slot. So the front of the 14K, so we talked about that PCIe switch at the back. Right. We take three 16 lane PCI uh, slots, create three 16 lane PCI slots in each controller. So there are six 16 lane slots across the two. 
And then in each one of those slots, we populate a dual port HFI card. Oh, okay. So a 16 lane slot gets me that 128 gigabits per second of throughput roughly. Um, and I put a dual ported OmniPath card in each of those by 16 slots. Uh, that's, you, you described over-provisioned earlier. I wasn't expecting this to be like a by 16 with a dual port in it. By 16 with, with a dual port, absolutely. Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. So over-provisioned on the front end, over-provisioned right. inside to the SAS lanes at the back. Uh, yeah. Lots of over-provisioning in that storage <laughs> fusion fabric. <laughs> um, uh, can you talk at all about the actual process of, you know, requesting this custom part through Intel and developing it with them, what that relationship has been like? I, I mean, DDN has a long time relationship with Intel. Intel was with us helping understand the performance limitations of the 12K, you know, so we, we've partnered with them for a long time. And in fact, um, Intel, when they came out with uh, um, Ivy Bridge, uh, which was a you know a, a midlife kicker to the 12K platform, si Sandy Bridge to Ivy Bridge, they had optimized some of their um, their table lookup code with Ivy Bridge, and it turned out that that actually slowed down performance of that QPI bus and made our 12K even slower. Uh, so we went back with Intel and, and we partnered with them to create a special version of code for Ivy Bridge versions of the 12K, the 12KX platform, uh, to get that performance back over that bus. So uh, so our relationship with Intel has been tight for a long time. We use all Intel processors inside of our systems uh, and we've co-developed them for a very long time. So it was natural for us to want to go back and say, gee, that single port card is nice, but we really need a dual port card. Uh, and Intel was very amenable to developing that which is with us. I think we've branded it something like OmniConnect if you talk to the marketing okay. teams. Um, so that dual port HFI card, as far as I know, it's a DDN only. Um, and the drivers will lag a little bit behind the single port cards, which are coming soon. Um, but we should be very close behind them. All right. Now, this is, of course, a little bit of a contentious question. But can you talk at all about uh, working with OmniPath? versus uh, what's been more traditional for the SFA platform, the, the InfiniBand uh, that you, you also support. Sure. And it really, the, from an SFA perspective or a storage perspective, the interface is not all that interesting mm. uh, until you get to the OFED stack. That's mm -hmm. the one part where we've got some shifting to go on. Intel uses kernel-based OFED, and we've always used Mellanox's uh, OFED stack because Mellanox's OFED stack has some capabilities that are not built into kernel-based OFED. Um, one in particular that we take advantage of is something called SRIOV, which allows multiple um, virtual machines to share an I.O. interface card for example. Uh, so we need that capability. So one of the challenges we've got in working on the OmniPath side is adopting to a new OFED stack and then working with um, Intel and Mellanox to add all the capabilities we absolutely have to both stacks. And then there will be also this idea of compatibility on the stack that's running on the cluster between OFED and MOFED type installations because we will have some instances where perhaps we've got an InfiniBand storage box, but our IO servers maybe connect to both OmniPath and InfiniBand. So now we have to have an OFED stack that's capable of working through those environments. So it's a challenge. Uh, yeah. It's a great engineering challenge to go work on and, and uh, Intel and, and DDN are having a good time working out all the details of that. So that's probably the most interesting piece as far as I'm concerned in, in terms of switching from OFED to InfiniBand. Yeah, uh, something that, that Dan wanted me to ask that he wasn't able to be here with us today, but he wanted to know if there's anything particular to data integrity that's different between an OmniPath uh, system versus an InfiniBand system. 
you know, so this is starting to get into the weeds of Omnipath sure. more than it is uh, the storage side. But one of the things that Intel approached very differently on the Omnipath side was automatic error correction on the bus. They have some engineering concerns and their judgment's usually pretty good, but they have some concerns that at these very high signal rates where we're running these 100 gigabit uh, throughput uh, connections that there could be more a higher bit error rate. And so Omnipath has automatic corrections for those errors built into it, which is unique. Now, will we see this in practice? I don't know. We have to see some EDR solutions out there and, and see if we do actually have that higher bit error rate or not. But up front, Omnipath is designed to handle that a little bit better. And so I, I think the prediction is not wrong. Even if it doesn't show up at 100 gigabit, you know, within a couple of years, we are going to have 200 gigabit HDR and 200 gigabit Omnipath mm -hmm. type solutions coming down. So sooner or later, those signal rates do definitely become a concern. Sure. Um, so the, the system that has been, uh, that's been suggested for Summit uh, is an embedded system, and we'll talk about that a yeah. little bit more. But there's still, uh, is it the X platform that is the non-embedded, or is the X something else entirely? From so X is a midlife kicker, usually in DDN terms. So we go from a 12K to a 12K X. I see. And and usually, you know, Intel does this TikTok process with their processors, where in one turn they'll modify the manufacturing process, and in the other turn they'll change the microarchitecture of the chip. So when the microarchitecture is the same, but you just change the manufacturing process, those processors are plug compatible with the existing motherboards and can give you additional performance boost. So typically somewhere through the midlife of a platform, we'll get that midlife kicker processor from Intel and we'll plug it in and test it uh, and deploy it. And those platforms usually get an X designation. So just then in, in you know, X or not, the non-embedded version of the SFA system. Uh -huh. uh, so there's a, a connection between the file servers, whether it be a grid scaler or uh, an exascaler file server, uh, and the actual storage system. And I think that's traditionally been an InfiniBand link. Is that accurate? Like uh, an it has direct? been InfiniBand, but it sometimes is 40 giggy. I mean, okay. we support all of those. I, my, my question is, if you have an Omnipath system uh, that's presumably exporting Omnipath or the file system over Omnipath out of that server. Do you then also use an Omnipath connection for that direct connection between the SFA and the controller or not the controller, the SFA and the server? Yes. Or, yeah. Okay. So it's just yes. across the board. Whatever. Absolutely. We, okay. we can do whatever. It is a by 16 PCI slot yeah. in the controller and we can swap different interface cards in there. If somebody came out with something else that was esoteric and interesting, but really fast, we could qualify that. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, we were talking before. I've been using DDN for a long time. Uh, my first HPC stuff is the, the IBM Blue Gene at Argon, and that was a big DCS uh, mm -hmm. 9900 installation. And other Blue Jeans and other systems have had you know similar uh, 9900 or or SFA 10K 12K systems. Sure. Uh, but all of those have had some smallish or medium-sized cluster of file servers in front of it. Uh, I think the biggest I've seen, the the one at uh, at Kaust, which was uh, 16 rack blue jean, had a 36 node uh, cluster of mm -hmm. GPFS servers in front of it to mm -hmm. serve its DDN. So the idea of running, as has been specced for us here, the embedded, where the file servers are now just a pair of VMs <laughs> running inside of the controller, it freaks me out a little bit. So sure. uh, can you talk about the performance uh, 
expectations of the embedded platform versus a non-embedded platform with dedicated servers and and maybe where the transition point is where you would say oh you know you, you really have requirements that exceed the embedded platform mm -hmm. uh, yeah that's that's good and it's something that DDN has been doing for several generations now we Im introduced our first embedded platforms in the 10k line um, and now we've even got a scale out platform in the form of the GS and ES7k platforms that are embedded as well so there's a good value proposition. Let me back up a little bit and explain how that's implemented. And, and then I think that that'll go a long way to explaining, is there a performance impact? Yeah, there is. Um, and we'll explain why. Uh, and what it comes to is that inside of the SFA, we will run those IO server codes in a virtual machine. And we'll have multiple of them. So in the case of the what we would call a GS14K system that's coming here into Summit, GS is grid scaler, so it's GPFS-based or spectrum scale-based, we should yeah. say. <laughs> um, there will be four virtual machines inside of the controller, two, two on each controller. Right. They will each own one OmniPath port on the front of the box. Now, each of those ports, let's do some math here, 100 gigabit connection. Uh, I'll round it down to practical from experience. We expect to see upwards of around 10 gigabytes per second of throughput per Omnipath port. I think that's a reasonable number to expect for you know large streaming I.O. So each of those virtual machines will own one of those ports. So right now you're limited to 40 gigabytes per second of throughput almost immediately just by saying we're only going to use four of those ports on these embedded systems. Mm -hmm. um, in reality, we expect to get somewhere from 36 to 38 gigabytes per second of throughput, provided there's enough spindles on the back end to generate that throughput. Right. So that's your cap. Now, what would a standalone system do? Well, a standalone system has six ports available. So we expect it to be able to produce upwards of maybe 60 gigabytes per second of throughput in that sort of standalone or external IO server configuration. So yes, there's a difference there, but it's not that significant. And there's some real savings uh, in doing this embedded platform. Um, some of them comes with the licensing for the file system. We get some benefits because Spectrum Scale is licensed on a per socket basis. So we have less sockets. We only have to pay for the sockets we're using. And this is a known agreement with IBM. This is not mm -hmm. something we're doing under the covers. Yeah, this when we were figuring out the proposal from Dell and trying to tag each license with what it goes <laughs> with, having to figure out the half licenses How did that, that go work? with different, I mean, it just took us a while to be confident That's right. that the numbers were right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we don't do anything underboard. We, <laughs> we, we like IBM. We work with IBM a lot. Um, so we're happy about that. But so you do save some money in that embedded platform just there. You also don't have to purchase the servers. And so you also have less power consumption and less ports in your switches when you go to this embedded platform. And so as configured, the Summit system, uh, it's got about 350 spinning disks inside of it, plus a centralized metadata core, should sustain somewhere north of 20 gigabytes per second of throughput. Uh, and that's not even what it could do. You could add more disks to it later and drive it up closer to that, you know, somewhere between 36 and 38 gigabytes per second of yeah, throughput. In fact, one of the last things we did before contract was add additional storage drawers so that we'll be better prepared to add disks like that. But it exactly. sounds like uh, we're right on the threshold of doubling the disk would just bring us up to the you know, the, the bottlenecks absolutely. in the controller. So a absolutely. probably kind of okay there. Yeah, you are. And, and you know, so you are giving some things up. You know, these virtual machines do absolutely take resources inside right. of the box. But one of the things we do differently on the block platform or that discrete or external I.O. server mode, whatever we want to call that, is that we put a higher core count processor and more RAM 
in those embedded platforms. Okay. So instead of a 10 core processor, we've got a 14 uh, inside of there. And instead of, oh, I think it's 64 gig of RAM, we double that to 120 gig, 128. And so in the case of this, uh, the virtual machine environment, each of those VMs is gonna have 40 gig of RAM dedicated to it uh, as, as we configure it, which is, more than I usually put in an external uh, GPFS NSD server node anyway. 32 mm -hmm. gig is, is pretty normal for GPFS. Um, so there's a very rich memory configuration, plenty of performance there. And it has some other benefits. Um, you have a couple of less hops through your interface cards to get to storage. So actually there is a bit of a latency advantage in this embedded platform versus that external IO server model. Have you seen that in benchmarks at all, especially for kind of IOP intensive workloads? <laughs> you know, we've never benchmarked it and okay. we probably should, but you know, we know it's true because we just count the hops in the interface cards, but <laughs> knowing in terms that it's true on the, the silicon, but it would be interesting to know exactly what the impact is it in, would. in user space. And it's something we just haven't had the time to benchmark, but yeah, but yeah it's it, there. Is there a migration path from an embedded, like say, say we add a bunch of disks, like we add, you know, five more drawers. I think it goes up to 15 or something, right? It can go up to 20. Oh, uh, 20. Yeah. We add a whole <laughs> other cabinet of it. Sure. Uh, <laughs> and we want to run it off the same controller for some reason. Uh, is there a migration path to put dedicated servers on top of what was previously an embedded platform? Or is it kind of you are embedded and you will always yeah, be? Yeah, you're embedded and you're always going to be embedded pretty much. I mean, can we do it? It's possible. Uh, but generally, we don't. I mean, if you need to continue to scale performance after that, we'll add another GS14K to the solution. Uh, and, and right. scale that yeah. way, right? Because yeah. just because it's a, a bigger building block doesn't mean we can't have hundreds of those tagged together. So um, we can build a faster building block, but we would recommend a, a new controller at that right. point. And I, I'm sure that's what I would want to do yeah, also. Absolutely. Um, just because I'm curious, what hypervisor are you using for the VMs? Is it KVM or do you have something else? It, it's KVM, KVM. Uh, absolutely. Uh, at, at that point, uh, so you talked about how you definitely have uh, resources going to these VMs then. What prevents uh, the VMs from interrupting the SFA OS uh, in, you know, as we were discussing that it's real timeness. So remember, they don't interrupt the SFA any differently than if their IO came through an Omnipath card. It's just coming through the internal network instead. Okay. Um, so as far as the SFA is concerned, it, it's just an IO server making a request. Okay. Uh, how, how are upgrades handled for the software stack between the SFA OS mm -hmm. controller itself and the VMs that are running GPFS inside of it or Luster? Here? Right. Th those are completely independent. Okay. Um, you know, so the SFA upgrade can happen and you can leave your GPFS on the same version, right? Some people get very comfortable with their file system version. They don't want to change their client side. They don't want to upgrade the server side for some reason. Th those are independent. So we have, you know, multiple generations of, of uh grid scaler NSD servers that are supported with each version of SFA. Do you end up uh, suggesting a different kind of GPFS configuration depending on whether it's an embedded or a, a non-embedded platform? Like, do they perform differently mm -hmm. such that you should configure them differently? That kind of thing? Actually, they're not. No. You, you know, the networking configuration is different na naturally because you're working through this VM stack, but in terms of the GPFS settings, they're the same. Sorry, I have to read this question and understand it. We have another, you know, question from Dan. Um, so I'll just read what he has here. The, the SFA platform has offered journal drive rebuilds since the 12K became available. Does the 12K, or sorry, does the 14KE, uh, the embedded version, offer journal RAID rebuilds 
for non-recoverable drives. Absolutely. So the the feature, we actually call this feature partial rebuilds uh, inside of SFA. And this is an SFA feature, so it's not platform specific. Every DDN platform has this capability to do this journaled I.O. And what it gets you is uh, the ability to recover from a number of situations. So here's the most common things we'll see is somebody's going to replace a disk drive and they accidentally pull the wrong drive out. Oh no, now I have to rebuild that drive, not inside of SFA. So what happens when a drive goes offline inside of SFA, we will start journaling all the IO to that drive. And then there's a window and it's settable. The default is like 10 minutes long, that as long as it comes back within 10 minutes, we'll go replay the journal and bring that drive back online and it's no problems, no harm, no foul. You don't have to do this multi-hour rebuild because you accidentally pulled the wrong drive out. Um, The other place where this comes in, uh, when we design SFA platforms, um, we distribute the disks in the various storage pools across all of the enclosures. And and we do that for multiple reasons. One is to have multiple paths to those disks so we get the best performance, right? Taking advantage of that storage fusion fabric. The other thing is for the resiliency I talked about. We can lose 20% of our enclosures. If you've got a RAID 6, 8 plus 2 group or volume on your disk, and you lose an enclosure. So in a five enclosure system, we can lose one whole enclosure and that file system won't go down. Hmm. Okay, so if that was to happen, um, you know, it comes back online, we will play the journals back and drives are fine. But here's the other thing that might happen. So let's say a drive really does fail and we've got a hot spare pool sitting out there in some of the enclosures and we rebuild the drive in that hot spare pool. Now that drive may or may not be in the same enclosure as the original failed drive. The the hot spare. The hot spare that you rebuilt it to, right, right, may be someplace else. But you want to get that resiliency back. So you can do that as soon as the rebuild is complete. You pull out the shelf, pull out the failed drive, take out the drive you just rebuilt on and plug it back into the failed drive slot. SFA will journal that whole time. It'll replay the journal because SFA doesn't care where you put the drives. You can take the drives out of an array and scramble them all over the place. SFA will find them. You may hurt your performance. You may hurt your resiliency, <laughs> but SFA will find it. It'll keep the, the data. It knows that it's on the drive, not in the slot. Pool integrity right. is retained yeah. no okay. matter where you put the drive. It's tied to the drive, not to the slot. Interesting. So after this rebuild, you pull the drive out, put it back in its original location so you've got that great integrity so I can lose a full enclosure or something like that in case of somebody, oops, tripped over the power cord or mm-hmm. who knows what they did um, and and get it back. So yeah, that journal IO is still there. We call it partial rebuild capabilities. It's been there on the 10K, the 12K, the 7700s, and it will be absolutely there on all 14K platforms. Well, that's great. Uh, Scott, I've, I've been talking over everything here. Do you have any questions for our guest here? No, I'm good. Yeah? Yeah. What do you think well, about the SFA? I think it's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you've been working a little bit with the mm-hmm. the... I guess REPL isn't an uh, the, our replication cluster isn't an SFA, but you've done a little bit on the active system, I okay, think, which yes, is a 12K. Yes. And, you know, we'll be maintaining that system for another two or three years, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, anything else that we should know about uh, what DDN's doing now? Or I mean, we talked about IME a lot, <laughs> uh, but. So I'll tease you with, with something else that, <laughs> that maybe we could talk about at a later time. IME is one of the pieces, right? And, and it adds another tier to the storage platform, but it is HPC focused. But there's a third tier where DDN has been investing a lot of um, our resources as well. And that's this archive tier oh, of storage. Interesting. And so now we have agents that we can uh, use to migrate data based on policy off of your primary SFA parallel file system into an online archive in an object store, into DDN's WAS object store. 
And this is really good for a lot of data because quite often we'll get um, research data that's on there and then maybe the, the researcher completes their degree and they publish their paper, they publish their work and they save all their data. Do you need to keep that in your fast parallel file system? You really don't, but you do need to keep it forever and it's never going to change. So you can tear that off to this archive layer. Uh, and free up space on your parallel file system. So we've been doing a lot of work in this multi-lever tiering space. Um, we can even do collaboration on the back end, which is interesting, which is multi-site around the wow. globe type collaboration. Yeah. So you could share data through this object store. So, you know, in terms of investments, DDN is kind of focusing on now this sort of end-to-end -end life cycle for HPC data management. It's no longer just providing a fast parallel file system. It's providing things like an IO acceleration layer in IME and an ability to publish data in an archive or keep data in a long-term archive at a lower cost than yeah. what your parallel file system would be. So that's where our investments are. It's pretty exciting stuff. Um, we are very excited about working with CSU on this, or CU rather, not CSU, well, sorry. Well, both of us. <laughs> this is a CSU, CSU as a partner. Yeah. I live in Fort Collins, so I'm just up the road. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, it's, and it's, it's important for us to, to remember and to, you know, we'll, we'll reiterate here, this is a, a joint project between CU and CSU. So um, and, and the be, community, right? Because yeah. you are going to be one of the first OmniPath clusters anywhere in the world. That's, that's the goal. So it brings we'll Intel in, it brings, you know, it's, it's Intel, it's DDN, it's Dell, it's CU, CSU. So it really is a great collaboration. And we love partnering with our with our customers um, to, to do these kinds of solutions. So we look forward to working with you on this one. Yeah, and, and likewise, I, I'm excited for the system, not just to see the embedded platform, but also the Intel OmniPath network, I'm particularly interested in that, but the the new socketed file should be really cool too. We'll Absolutely, see, we'll see what happens there. Um, you know, if there's nothing else, then right. uh, recording facilities were provided today by the Anderson Language and Technology Center at the University of Colorado Boulder, with assistance from Manny Weo. Uh, again, our guest today was Roger Goff from Data Direct Networks. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you'd like more information on research computing at CU, you can find us at rc.colorado.edu or email us at rc-help at colorado.edu. Until next time, thanks for listening. Almost hear the NPR music playing. In there. Excellent. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Man, I, I keep saying until next time wrong. I, I, I'm like, next time. Uh, let's see. Until next time, thanks for listening.